we're walking our way, working our way through the Bible. And one of the goals of Blessed Hope this year, well, and, and almost every year, it's always been the desire of Blessed Hope Community Church to get us more involved in Scripture, spending time in Scripture. And uh, one way that I know that they wanted to accomplish this in, in getting people excited in reading Scripture is to do this, is to do this series on let's, you know, what's the Bible have to say in the big picture. And, you know, that's, that's something, you know, I don't stand up here and give a message that I don't myself need to hear. Um, I think of this story of a pastor who was driving home from a sermon one day, and his wife was in the passenger seat, and he's driving, and he's kind of irritated. And he looks at her, and he says, you know, I thought I had a pretty good sermon this Sunday. It would have been nice if halfway through it, you hadn't gone, ha! Anyway. So, yeah, she knows this is something I need to be spending more time in as well. So, there you go. But take a moment with me, if you could, and just pretend that you're a professional actor, or you're in, into drama, and you're, in, in, you're professional at that. And pretend that there is a book or a play that has been recently discovered in like some dusty act, attic somewhere, and it's a play that's broken into five acts, and it's brilliant. It's got intrigue, it's got drama, it's got some humor, it's perfectly written. And it, it's, it's just a page-turner, and it's just fantastic until you get to that fifth act. There's a couple of pages into the fifth act, and then there's just, it, it doesn't end. It, there's nothing there. There's maybe some notes by the playwright. Uh, it gives you notes and ideas of how the story ends. But it's kind of left open-ended. We, you don't know what happened. And it's just say that you get together with a bunch of people and say, you know what, we're going to act this out. We're going to do this play. And when we get to that fifth act, we're going to improvise. And when I talk about improvisation in that set setting, that doesn't mean that, you know, people on the stage just suddenly act like idiots and start talking and doing and saying whatever they feel like and think about saying. They do it and they improvise with a perfectly good knowledge of what has come before because they've read the first four acts, they're familiar with it, they know the story, they know everything about it, they know their character and their role in the story, they know the other people and how they're going to behave, and they have a general idea of how it's going to end. So when I say improv, it's doing, with the, doing it with the idea of how the story works out. Um, it's kind of like music. If you've ever been to a band, seen a band play, you know, it's the same sort of thing. Um, you'll hear, you, you've probably seen them play a song that you may be familiar with, and all of a sudden they kind of start riffing, and they're doing their own thing. But they're not playing any notes that they want to play. They're playing a song that they're familiar with, but now they're taking it in a different direction, but they know the, they know the harmonic structure. They're listening to the players, and they're playing, and it's, it's sort of kind of going off in their own direction, but they know how to bring it to an end. That's sort of what I'm, I'm talking about when I'm talking about uh, improv. Um, and let's be honest, when it comes to reading scripture, 
it's difficult sometimes. It can be challenging. It can be confusing at times. And if I'm going to be completely honest, sometimes there are sections in here that I can find to be kind of boring. And therefore, I think one of the mistakes that we make sometimes is we try to simplify it, break it down into little sections here and there. So, you know, well, this will tell me a little bit about, you know, how to act here, and maybe this will teach me this truth. And then the Bible ends up becoming like this unsorted edition of a, of a Christian textbook. You know, here's something to believe about this, and here's a way to behave under these circumstances. Here's a story here, and that's all it becomes. Or worst case scenario, we, come, we become Christians who are the Jesus of Christmas Christians, and we become the Jesus of Easter Christians, and that's all the farther we go. Now, please understand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to belittle that. I'm not trying to be flippant about that. There is tremendous, incredible power of the story of Christ and his birth and his death and resurrection. I think of this story that I read just recently. It was a a cardinal from the Catholic faith, a guy by the name of Jean-Marie Lustinger. He's a... a preacher, he's a, a priest in, in France. And he was up there and he was giving a story about three kids growing up in France and how uh, they didn't have any kind of Christian, any kind of background at all, of religious, of anything. And they were hellions. They would go out, they'd cause trouble, they'd damage stuff, they, you know, life was just a game to them, and they just went off and did whatever they want, whatever they wanted to, you know. And one day they came to this Catholic church, and they got to talking, and they thought it would be really funny if they could go, if, they, if somebody would go in there and sit down, because the priest was hearing confessions, to sit down with this priest and say some of the most vile, terrible things that they could come up with. They thought this would be kind of funny. And they started daring each other, and finally one kid says, I'll do it. So he goes into the church, and he sits down with his priest and starts saying just these horrible things, you know, just making up stuff, and they're just awful stuff. And the priest pretty quick figures out what's going on. And he doesn't say anything. He just lets them sit and and talk. And finally he says, okay, here's, here's my penance for you. He says, I want you to go out of this confessional. I want you to go to the altar. I want you to kneel at the altar, and I want you to look at the cross of Jesus crucified, this really big cross that was there at the church. He says, I want you to kneel at the altar. I want you to look at that, and I want you to say three times, Jesus, I know you died for me, and I don't give a damn. So he thinks, well, that's a challenge. So he does. He goes up there, he kneels at the altar, and he says it once. He says it twice, and he couldn't say it a third time. And kneeling at the altar with tears running down his face, he said, that boy walked out of that church a different person. And the priest says, I know that boy because that was me. So when I make comments about Christians that are, you know, Christians that, that are Christmas and Easter and that's all there is and there's nothing more to know about faith than that. I'm not trying to belittle it. There is tremendous, incredible power in the cross. 
However, if that's all the farther your faith is gone, five years down the road, ten years down the road, then you need to step back and start taking this stuff a little bit more seriously. I've been a, a deputy sheriff now for 30 years. Right now I'm working two cases involving the FBI. I'm working a case that involves the dark web, I'm doing stuff involving elder adult abuse, child sexual abuse. I'm doing stuff right now that I can't imagine do, you know, where I'm at now compared to where I was 30 years ago when I wrote my first ticket for 65 and a 55. The time, but that's kind of how careers go. Whether you're a farmer, whether you're a teacher, whatever it is that you do, that's kind of how it works. You start at a beginning. And you, as the years go by, your talents, your abilities grow, your relationships within that career, you learn from them, you learn from their experience, you do training, and it goes on. And so here I am 30 years down the road, and I've learned a whole lot more than I did before. Yet for many Christians, we come to the cross, but then our, our faith doesn't grow, it just sort of flatlines. And um, so that's one of the reasons why our church really tries to encourage us to get into Scripture. It is a bedrock of our faith. And I think of, when I think of the Bible, personally, sometimes I think of the Bible as a book in five acts. You've got the creation story, Act 1, where you have good God making a good world that is a good place to be. It is not garbage. It's not trash. And he puts human beings into that world, and they are called to reflect God's image into the world. And that's an incredible responsibility. And it's also an incredible blessing, if you think about it. To be God's image bearer, image bearers reflecting his wide stewardship into the world and reflecting the praises of creation back to him. And that's the first act. And if we understand that, then we see how the act two, where it goes all wrong, where you have Genesis chapters uh, 3 to 11, where it starts with human being rebelling, and it ends in arrogant human empire. And then we get into Act 3, which is a much, much longer act and a critical act, and it's the story of Israel. And that's kind of where we're at right now. It starts from the call of Abraham, and it runs all the way through until we get to the call of Je- or the, the birth of Jesus. And a lot of people treat this Act 3, the, the story of Israel, as sort of a miscellaneous grab bag of, of stories, of people getting it right and people getting it wrong, and there's prophecy and there's poetry and there's ideas in there, and it is all of that. But ultimately, this Act 3 is a story of Israel, and it means what it means as Act 3 in this five-act story, book, And, of course, Act 4 is going to be Jesus himself who brings Israel's story to its climax. He's going to do 
for Israel what Israel couldn't do for itself. He's going to do for the world what the world was clearly not going to be able to do for itself. And when you read the Gospels and when you read the letters of the New Testament, you see those are soaked in the story of Israel all throughout. You have Matthew's genealogy, the beginning of, of the, the New Testament. Matthew's genealogy, looking back all the way through. You've got the book of John, where it starts with, in the beginning. And I've always wondered what it was like to be John. You know, writing under the power of the Holy Spirit to write the words, in the beginning. That's the Genesis language. I can only imagine what that must have been like for him. Something I saw just recently was that if you look at Luke and how that connects to 1 Samuel, you've got in 1 Samuel the birth of a prophet by the name of Samuel who's going to be the prophet to the greatest king Israel had, and that's David. And then you look at Luke, which starts with the birth of the prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets, John who's going to prepare and announce the king of the world and of all history. Not a coincidence. And then the Gospels themselves come to an end with, and Act 4 comes to the end with the death and resurrection of Christ. And then we have Act 5, which is an open story that we're living right now. It starts with the Spirit, the beginning of the church, and it goes along, and then there's some letters and ideas and things, but we're going to be basically called to improvise. But you're not going to be able to do it very well if you don't know what's in here, and if you don't know the story that God is trying to tell. When we know that story, we know our position and our place. And then, through the power of the Spirit, we can go out and we can truly be the image bearers that God has called us to be. So, last week, David Condry left us off with um, the Israelites escaping from Egypt. God had delivered them through all those plagues and everything else and delivers them out of Egypt, Egypt. And that's where the story ended last week. I'm picking up in around Exodus chapter 16 where... The Israelites are saved from Egypt, but they still need saved. They're in the desert. You don't live very long in the desert. So God is going to provide them manna or bread and water to survive. And from there, they're going to go to Mount Sinai, where Moses will meet with God, and the Ten Commandments and the covenant is going to be given. But I like the fact that I start in chapter 16 prior to that. Because it's a reminder that the Israelites still needed saving. When you look at the covenant that God had given Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'll make a great nation, and you will be a blessing. You see his working all the way up through this. You see him, you see God being faithful to that promise constantly, over and over. And here in chapter 16, they're still being faithful. He is still, God is still being faithful to that promise. And it's only after that that God is going to give them the law. He's only after that going to give them the Ten Commandments. Did you ever wonder why he didn't give them the Ten Commandments and the law when they were in Egypt? 
enslaved. Why he didn't say, do these things, here's the law, here's the Ten Commandments, do these things, and if you guys are doing a good enough job, I'll send you out then. Because that's the way God operates, and it's the way he operates for you. It's a reminder. Chapter 16, for me, starting there is a reminder that salvation and redemption has to always come before righteousness. You are never going to be right with God until first you've been redeemed, until first you have been saved. Only then can you be righteous. You're never going to stand before God on your own righteousness. You're not going to be able to stand there before him on your own righteousness. You must first be redeemed. That's one of the key messages that I see, you know, by starting in chapter 16. Um, So they're given bread and water, and from there they travel to Mount Sinai. And now God is going to give them the Ten Commandments and the covenant or the law. And again, I start in chapter 16, and then I have to go all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, and I'm just going to rip right through this real fast. Um, Just so you have an idea of this long story short. After this, we get into the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers, the Israelites have been given the covenant, and now they're they're going to move on their way, and they're heading to the promised land. And they get to almost in sight of the promised land, and they stop, and they refuse to go in. God had told them, go on, go to this land. It's yours. It's your inheritance. Go there and take it, and they won't. They send some spies out. They hear some bad news that there's some bad dudes out there, and they're like, nope, we're not doing it, and they refuse. It reminds me of uh, something C.S. Lewis always said. There's two kinds of people. The kind of people that look to God and say, thy will be done. And then there are the kind of people that God looks at and says, all right, have it your way. And that's what God says. They refuse to go, and he says, all right, have it your way. You won't enter the promised land. At least you won't. Your descendants will, but you're not. And for 40 years... They're stuck in the desert, wandering. And then we finally get to Deuteronomy. Um, I skipped over Leviticus. Leviticus is actually the law. By the way, we say read Scripture, and you do need to read Scripture. I wouldn't start with Leviticus, just a suggestion. Um, Definitely read it at some point, but it, um, yeah. But then we get to Deuteronomy. The 40 years is up. They're going to enter the promised land. They're at the point of doing it, and God is going to give them the Ten Commandments a second time, and he's going to give them the law again. It's going to be repeated and expanded on. And then it's laid out for them. They are the covenant people. And in Deuteronomy 28, it talks about how there are going to be blessings and curses. Do these things, and you will be blessed. You don't, and it's not going to go well for you. The Lord will exile you and your king to a nation. The Lord will exile you and your king to a nation unknown to you and your ancestors. There in exile, you will worship gods of wood and stone. You will be an object of horror, ridicule, and mockery. 
among all the nations which the Lord sends you. In Leviticus, it does mention that, you know, by not doing, if they don't do what they're told to do, he says, I will set my face against you, and you will be struck down by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. And at the end of Deuteronomy, it ends with the death of Moses. And um, just prior to his death, he basically prophesies that it's not going to go well for the Israelites. They're not going to be faithful. And you may not know a whole lot about this Act 3, but I think you know well enough to know that it doesn't turn out very well. My job this morning was to continue the story in Scripture where David left off, Dave Condry left off, and to talk about the Israelites freed from Egypt and going to the point of the promised land. And in between that is a pretty massive section involving the law and the Ten Commandments. This is where they are going to be the covenant people. God has had this covenant since the time of Abraham, and he's been faithful, but now he is requesting them to be covenant people and how they are going to uh, do conduct their lives, how they're going to conduct their government, how they're going to conduct their worship, what worship's going to look like. Everything is going to be laid out for them. And again, it doesn't go well. Paul says in the letters that the Israelites were faithless. Jesus in the Gospels laments more than once, but in one case he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent, sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a, hen, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And so by the time that Jesus, of Jesus' birth, what Moses had predicted, had prophesied, come true. Israel is now under the rule of the Roman Empire. Israel was the covenant people to which the whole world was meant to be made right. But God knew perfectly well that the very people that he had chosen also bore the sin of Adam. Hosea mentions that. says, like Adam, you broke my covenant and you betrayed my trust. Israel was a saved, special people, but they forgot what they had been saved for. The purpose of the covenant, as God had said to Abraham, the purpose of the covenant was to be a special people so they could be a blessing. You are the light of the world, Jesus says in the Gospels. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. God, had, Jesus did not come to destroy the covenant. He came to make a new covenant. Think of the Last Supper where he pours the wine and said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. The title of this series, again, is a long story short. We're working our way through the Bible. And again, I was asked 
to discuss this covenant with you. The Bible says that all of God's promises finds its yes in Jesus. God has been faithful and continues to be faithful to his promise even today. But we have a responsibility. We are the other part of the covenant. If we're sitting here this morning as Christians, we have a responsibility. Because as, the, as Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. We are people here of, a new, of the new covenant. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are empowered with his spirit to do his will. Which is what? to bear his image into this world. Jesus makes the comment, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, in other words, the rulers of this world, lord it over them. And their superiors exercise authority over them, but Jesus says we're not going to do it that way, we're going to do it different. He says it shall not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. When God wants to take his power, when he wants to take his reign, when he wants to put the world to rights, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, and he sends in the brokenhearted, and he sends in the poor of spirit, and the peacemakers, and so on. And that's what it means to bear his image into this world. And that is something that's going to be a real stumbling block for some and foolishness to others. But it is a message and a calling this world is desperate, desperate to hear. We here at Blessed Hope Community Church preach Christ crucified. And he is risen. May God help us to be loyal. And may his word become so real in our hearts that with the help of his spirit, we can live a life that is faithful to God and faithful to his word. Amen. Thank you, and uh, have a good weekend.